You're listening to the IHOPKC Family Connect podcast. In these 30-minute family conversations, fueled by the Word of God, the beauty of Jesus, and His glorious return, we will explore the narratives the Lord is weaving in the story of the global body of Christ as we digest what the Lord is saying to the church today. Hello and welcome. My name is David Slyker, and I'm here with Dana Kendler. Hello, hello. And I am the president of the International House of Prayer University, and Dana, along with her husband Matt, are our prayer directors. They drive all of our prayer training, and we are so thankful for that. It's a joy. We love it. The other thing that I'm loving is we're in the second of a, of a you know few weeks long conversation about Song of Solomon. And the joy of it is we teach this together in the school. And so this, isn't, this is not a hard conversation for us to have. Right. We've had it with each other and with students for many, many years now. And what we talked about last week to kind of set this up, we talked about um, Psalm 27, 4, the, the encounter that Mike has with the Lord in 1983, where the Lord establishes Psalm 27, 4 at the center of this movement and at the center of what he wanted for the young people associated with it. That, the, that really, again, we think about this as old news. We think of beauty and the Song of Solomon and these messages as old news, but this is, we're just getting started. Right. Like this is going to touch millions and millions and millions of young people, some yet to be born. That's right. And so the, the Lord's going to have his way as it relates to the beauty message that we talked about last week. And then we talked about the encounter five years later. So you got the, the two audible voice encounters, beauty in 83 and the fiery seal of love from Song of Solomon 8, 6 and 7, the promise of the Lord to establish his people in the, the fullness of the first commandment in this age. That, and the fullness looks like unshakable, unmovable, a love so strong, so powerful that nothing can touch it, nothing can steal it from, from, our, from our hearts, from our lives, that um, there's an assurance there that we ended with last week. And it's the assurance that as weak as I might feel today, the Lord has an ordained, a, a jealous and intense desire to bring me into his preferred future, which is a heart that's fixed and set on loving him. Right. And so then the question is, how does he do it? How does he bring that forth? And how does he, I, I want to understand, how, God, how do you do it? And of course, the way that he does it is the Song of Solomon. Not the only way, but it's, but for us, it's been a, I'm thankful to the Lord. I don't know that I would have given so much of my life to understanding the Song of Solomon apart from the Lord making a point of it. And we talked about last week, one more review point. There's a natural resistance to the subjects of beauty and the Song of Solomon because of the idea of either the feminization or the romanticizing of the gospel, which which we would affirm that is That's, not okay, yeah, actually. Right. We, I don't know that we said that last week, but we, we want to say that definitively this week, that we agree with that. We, we don't want to romanticize or feminize the gospel in an unbiblical way. We don't want to re- by feminize, I mean, we don't want to reduce it so that it's only for, for women. And, and uh, when you do that, everybody says, well, I'm out. That doesn't sound biblical to me. This has to be for everybody. 
And then number two, we don't want to romanticize it. We don't want to reduce the gospel and we don't want to reduce our relationship with Jesus to some kind of weird Hollywood romanticized right. holy dating experience. That's, that's bizarre. And so, uh, so we want to affirm that. But at the same time, we want to testify to the power in our own lives and the lives of thousands that we've seen that when, when suddenly the Song of Solomon, by revelation, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, when it makes sense, it really does change everything. It changes everything. I, I mean, I remember hearing, I was a Bible school student sitting in the back. I'm listening to Mike teach 20 sessions on the Song of Solomon. At that point, it's what Stuart, I love Stuart's, it's the crispy part of my Bible at that point, you know, <laughs> like Song of Solomon. And he's going through all of these line upon line. I've still got you laughing. Isn't that great? It's true. But um, Right there with Nahum. Yes, right. But the details of what God feels for the weak ones, you and I, for the weak ones, the emotions of Jesus. And I just remember, I'm looking at it from a distance and I'm thinking, if this is true, this is going to change everything. Because it has the power to change my emotional chemistry in a way that I've never known in terms of having walked with the Lord at that point in time, my whole life, you know, 20 years old or whatever. And, and that's exactly what it did. It shifted things. It shifted my, my emotions, my understanding. It opened up my heart. It took guards down. I didn't even know we're up, you know, cause that's what it does. And it's the, it's that beauty that's in a concentrated form in the song of Solomon that unlocks the heart. You know, that's the big one, the, the point about, um, I'd call them the arguments of the soul against the gospel. We have so many arguments in our own soul related to our unbelief, and, and we don't, in our own mind, we're not thinking, I am arguing against God right now. Right. We just think it is a matter of fact. That's and right. so, so we have all of these, Paul calls them strongholds, you can call them arguments of the soul, they're all of the ways in which our soul resists the truth of the gospel. We just don't believe it. We don't believe Jesus loves us. It's not enough to tell someone, hey, Jesus loves you. Again, having done youth and young adult ministry for a number of years, I know that if you tell a young person Jesus loves them, they secretly roll their eyes and think, and I've had thousands now, young people acknowledge this. They roll their eyes and they think, yes, God loves me. He's supposed to. They, they think that the God that loves them is loving them from a place of gritting his teeth and tolerating them until they are resurrected or something. And so I'm going to bear with you because they have such a low conception of themselves and they have such a low idea. Not, not, I'm not, again, I'm not talking about self-esteem. I'm talking about from the word. They don't have any idea how God actually perceives them. And so the knowledge, the details uh, from the Song of Solomon of how God really perceives them, it begins to, it's really what Jesus says he's going to do. It's her life's yes. cry in the first chapter. If you draw me away, I'll run. In other words, if you, if you conquer my unbelieving heart, I, I want to run after you. I, every young person I know that loves Jesus says, I want to run after you. 
But the problem is my unbelieving heart. I, I just, I've got these arguments in my soul against the fact that you love me. I just, I've got way more evidence that I shouldn't be loved than I do that you love me. And so when the evidence that I'm not lovable outweighs what preachers have told me my whole life that he does, I, I believe the evidence. And so the Song of Solomon is this just unimpeachable argument for the love of Jesus mm-hmm. that your soul can't withstand. That's right. It just hammers away at the unbelief until your heart is first, at first, undone. Do you remember in our last class, one of our students, he'll love that we're, we're mentioning of Jerry. He just, he goes, I just can't believe this. I can't believe that God thinks these things about me. But the, but the details of Song of Solomon are so potent that even though he wants to believe it, his soul is resisting it. He goes, I don't, I just can't. I just, I know me. And I, I, the evidence of what I know about me is still stronger than the evidence of what Solomon is testifying about the love of God. Right. But, but by the end of the class, and this one was only five weeks, mm-hmm. it's five weeks later and he's in tears at the end of the class going, it happened. I believe this. And I think we said in that moment of wrestle, I think we said to him, oh, you're getting really close. Like that right there, that wrestle, you are on the precipice to that transformation where everything shifts because it's that moment that you begin to believe you're moved over me. And this isn't just the corporate body of Christ. It's personal that Jesus is moved by me. My love, my prayers, my reach, that changes. It shifts everything in our interior, and it changes our lives. You know, I'm going to do a little parentheses right here, and I want to hit the crispy part of the Bible point, because it, it just struck me when you said it, you know, Stuart's phrase, it, the, the most unread parts of our Bible, Leviticus, Song of Solomon, throw Nahum in there, any of the minor prophets, really. These are some of the most unread, unexplored parts of our Bible. Mm-hmm. And I, when you said that, it just hit me. It's Song of Solomon. I would, it's clear, Song of Solomon is one of the most unread books of the Bible only for the last hundred years. The moment that the body of Christ shifted its primary interpretation of the Song of Solomon, it rendered the Song of Solomon to unreadable. Because nobody actually wants to read a love story. They don't. They might go to a love story in a movie here and there, but it's not like they want a steady diet of somebody else's love story. They want to get their life right before God. Mm-hmm. And so practically, when you reduce it to just a man and a woman's marriage love story, it doesn't really seem to hold that much value. Now, there's friends of ours out there in the body of Christ that will go, no, it's important for marriage. Yes and no. Either way, however somebody would argue back, you can't argue that the, the most written about book in the history of the church, and then before that, rabbinical history, the most written about book in church history mm-hmm. over the last hundred years is the least read when we changed how we understood it. And that's a tragedy. That really is. I mean, that's, a, that's an intense way of saying it, but wow. I mean, just even to let that hit us, like, because of that shift the body of Christ at large, we don't read this part of the Bible. And it's, it's supposed to be a gift of God that actually is this beautiful tool to tenderize our hearts in the emotions of Jesus and his love for us. Right. So I just want to say that. 
for those out there that are new to the book, for the entirety of rabbinical history for the Jews, the Song of Solomon was understood as an allegory of the, of the story of God's love for Israel. And then the early church adopted that and understood it as the story of the bridegroom, Jesus, and his love for the bride, the church. And that interpretation has been the predominant way of understanding this book for 1,900 years of church history and a couple thousand years of rabbinical history before that. And so thousands of years of believers, those who were you know, the faithful to Yahweh in the Old Covenant and those who are lovers of Jesus, they love Jesus in the New Covenant, the way they understood it was an allegory of how God feels about his people. And so the power of that is self-evident, that when I can find myself in the story of how God loves me, it can unlock something. But then the last hundred years, it's mostly been, nope, it's just straightforward. The most responsible way to deal with the book is to leave it as marriage. There's challenging language. We don't want to romanticize the gospel. And so the safest is to leave it alone. And so, the, the, again, the problem with that is for us as young adult disciplers and shepherds, mm-hmm. the two of us, we've seen the most profound transformation in faith as it relates to believing Jesus loves, loves me when young people and old people, because again, Jerry, one of our students, was an older student. Right. And, for the, and for the first time, he's finding himself in the story of how God feels about his obedience and what God says about his obedience, that God delights, that God is moved, that God enjoys, that God takes pleasure in the relationship, the friendship. These are all new concepts to people. And that, to me, it's worth the fight to wrestle with the hard language to get to these anchors for the soul. You know, it's interesting. I'm just thinking about this as you're talking, but I'm remembering a couple weeks ago, um, when my nine-year-old is playing I Am the Rose by Tim Reimer in her room. And, you know, it's one of our favorites, f- favorite songs. And I, I'm in my room, and I, in that particular moment, I actually was wrestling in my heart. I was praying about something. I was heavy. I was carrying a burden. I hear that song, and my eyes fill with tears, and I just begin to sing it, you know, because it's one of those songs for me, too. It's filling, my eyes are filling with tears right now. And, um... And my daughter, Phoebe, she comes in my room and she sees that I'm singing it. And she says, do you love this song? I go, oh, I love this song. She goes, me too. It's my favorite Jesus song. And, and I'm thinking about a generation that, that doesn't necessarily have that gap where they, they've moved into something for the first time. I mean, there's no wrestle in her heart. Not to say that there never will be. And some of that wrestle is super good because we do want to have a biblical approach, you know, and we want this to be, I love how you always emphasize, this is the, this is the Old Testament book of Romans, like these truths go together, but I'm looking at my daughter and and she's so moved because she knows she's the rose to Jesus. And I believe that's what the Lord wants to put in the hearts, not just of our hearts, but in the hearts of our children. He wants to equip the body of Christ with knowing how he sees us, how he feels for us, how he treasures us. And that is going to do so much more than we even know in the days to come. So the story I'm going to tell next is going to be misunderstood by somebody. So I'm going to tell it anyways, because it's, it's necessary. 
And it's going to sound like I'm saying that my prayer life is better than somebody else's prayer life. And I, I don't mean that when I tell this story. So just know that. So I'm with uh, a bunch of evangelical brothers who you know that we've just met and love. I mean, they're just awesome guys. And we're praying together. And it was when I was listening to their prayers that I'm realizing the deficiency in a, of the diet. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's like if you don't get enough iron, this happens. If you don't get enough uh, vitamin C or whatever. And so there's a deficiency in the diet that, that informs your prayer life. And so as they're praying, all of their prayers were, I'm supposed to's. All of them. And all three of them. They all prayed the same way. Lord, I need to do this. And Lord, help me do this. And Lord, I want to do this. And it was all the checklist of supposed tos. Now, they were praying it passionately. They weren't praying it, you know, robotically or, or right, you know, right. stoically. They were feeling it. So these are God-fearing, love Jesus, fervent men uh, of prayer. But their prayer life was about me and what I'm supposed to do to please you. And so therefore it was all, God, I'm supposed to do this. And, you know, it was the God, you know, that I need to do this and I need to do that. And so God, I'm asking that you would help me to, to really do it. You know, and, and, and those prayers, I just want to emphasize, those prayers are not bad. But I, I, I almost was embarrassed when I started to pray because I just do what I always do. Lord, this is who you are. I love that you're like this. I'm asking you, do what you love to do in human hearts. Do it here. Do it there. And I'm just, I'm talking to my friend Jesus, who I know is moved by my prayer. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about him. I'm talking about what the word says that he's going to do. And I'm asking him from the word to do it. It's just what Mm -hmm. we do. It's how we do night and day prayer. We don't mostly talk about, we've, we've been trained by Paul's prayers to not mostly talk about the deficiencies of the church and to not mostly talk to God about our own deficiencies, but to mostly talk to God about God. Right. And I was realizing in that moment, that is, again, it's the last couple of weeks conversation, that is still such a weird and rare thing that I forget that it is until I'm in a prayer meeting and it's, it's a broader you know, subset of the body of Christ. And you know, our prayers are a product of our theology and our perspective and how we understand the world. And so, so as they're praying, it's clear they're coming from a paradigm of, God, I want to please you. And that's beautiful. That is beautiful. But the Song of Solomon, I find the, the reason it's so powerful is because it reorients our paradigm from, God, I want to please you, to add... Add, I want to, again, I want to make that point really clear, to add, you are pleased with me. That's the part that Jerry's struggling with, right? You're pleased with me. You enjoy me. Right now, this is how you feel. That I am praying moves you. You're feeling something. Right. It's not, my Christianity very quickly with Song of Solomon went from, God, I want to feel something, to being really thrown off that, God, you feel something. That's especially because those moments, 99.9% of the time are so weak. And so I'm weak. This prayer is weak. My faith is weak. Everything about this is weak. And that you would be moved right now to that prayer and over my heart in this moment, that it, it really is almost too much to believe except for 
the word says it's true. And this is what is true more than my own evaluations, more than my own conclusions. And so that wrestle, it happens in weakness and, and that the Lord would be moved. I mean, my favorite passage would have to be Song of Solomon 4, 9. You've ravished my heart, my sister, my bride, with one look of your eye. And then it speaks of every decision and choice of your will represented by the necklace and every link of the necklace because the neck represents the will throughout scripture. And so the Lord's saying, right now, this isn't like when you finally mature and in the decades ahead, way down the road, when finally love has come to fruition, then I'm ravished over you. No, this is right now. I'm moved by one glance of your eye. I mean, I remember being a 20-year-old wrestling that verse out in my car going, like right now? Like right now? Today? Is this possible? And that ravished heart of Jesus, it's actually in weak moments, and that undoes our heart. And he knows that, and it's supposed to. Yeah, the... I've heard people get really thrown off by that word ravished. It just seems like such an extreme word to attach to how Jesus could feel about me. But then there's one more layer that makes it even more offensive. If that word wasn't offensive enough, it's the place in the actual narrative of the song. Because the song is a story. The song is a journey. And what Solomon's singing about really is the journey of love, mm-hmm. the journey of believing that you are loved, the journey of responding out of that and, pers- and, and going from failing to pursuing and then from pursuing to helping others pursue. I mean, it's just this unbelievably beautiful journey. And so where is she in the journey when the Lord says that? That, that word is even more offensive. Like if I don't even want to prove the word, <laughs> I don't even want to argue the word. I actually want to make it more offensive. It's in the context of her second round of compromise and failure related to her fear. It's, it's just on the other side of the divine chastisement of the Lord. The Lord lovingly chastising her to bring her out of her compromise. And the Lord lovingly dealing with her failure mm-hmm. to bring her into um, a place of confidence and love. It, it's one thing to make the deck. I just love, I love the way the Song of Solomon is structured because she makes the, you know, youth conference declaration. If you draw me, I'll run. I'll right. do it, Lord. I commit. I'll run after you all the days of my life. It's the youth conference declaration. Your kids, I'm sure, made it this summer right. at the youth conference they went to. I'm, I'm yours all the days of my life. Boom. Next verse, she fails. And she's acknowledging that failure. But then the Lord, you know, gives a little hint of what you're talking about in chapter one. He says it, he says a couple phrases that he's going to give a whole chapter to here in chapter four. He says, no, I, I, I love you. <laughs> I love you. And she's going, wait, what? He goes, yes, you are my favorite. Just to simplify the, the, the verse for a moment. You're my favorite. Out of everybody, you're my favorite. Like that's, now that's offensive. I just failed and you're calling me your favorite. How can that be? And because you're my favorite because of the choices you've made in your past to love me and the emotions, the way you feel about me. Not all the time, but when you feel it, it moves me. I love that. It, it makes you my favorite. So then that revelation restores her, empowers her, emboldens mm-hmm. her, ministers to her. So now she's having the time of her life. And as she's actually at the high point of the conference high, she fails again in fear and in compromise. 
and disobeys the Lord. She will not go where the Lord invites her to go out of fear. And it's in the context of her response to correction, her response to chastisement, that the Lord says that. That because she stays with it, what did she do? Your, your point about it being so weak and so mm-hmm. small. What did she do that was so amazing? She didn't quit when the Lord chastised her. She didn't, she didn't run away when the Lord corrected her. And because she, she stayed with it and responded to it, the Lord goes, you have conquered my heart. I mean, it's just such an outrageous phrase. You've conquered my heart. Then verse 10, we, we love this verse. Verse 10, the Lord says, your love, because you had said it earlier in chapter one, the, the point about pleasure, you ended the last right. session with it. That, Lord, your love is better than wine. Your love is the most pleasurable thing in life. It's so offensive. The Lord in verse 10 of chapter 4 goes, Your love is the most pleasurable thing. (laughs) I know. We don't even know what to do with this. That's why our students at first, that's the wrestle you're talking about. Right. That's the wrestle. The the Lord uses such outrageous language to give Mm -hmm. detail to his love. It's like he meets the objection of our heart with even more outrageous language. Like, I already don't believe that you love me. He goes, oh, well, then how about this? You're my favorite. No, what? What? I already didn't believe it. And you've conquered my heart with your repentance. What? I just failed. And your love is the most pleasurable thing in my life. Okay, I'm done. Like he actually answers our objections with more objectionable truth. And and part of it, part of the reason why this is so hard for us is because we really don't believe that God has emotions. But not only does he have emotions, but he has more depth to emotions than we can possibly imagine, untainted by sin. He does not have the guards that we have. He does not put a wall up like we do. And so he has these beautiful, the heights and depths and fragrance and vastness to his emotions. I mean, and, and so it actually isn't overstatement when it's coming from him. It's authentic. It's real. He is ravished. And our hearts are so divided up and walled up and guarded that, we've, that, that we don't even know how to feel that way. But Jesus does feel that way, and he's not afraid to keep pouring over us that uh, profuse emotion until our hearts unlock. And we love him back. We receive, and then we love him with the same love. Here's what I love. I love that we're doing the thing we've been talking about. We've been after the subject of beauty and the power of beauty and pleasure and delight and wonder. And then we just kind of started talking about the love of God. In my heart, I am like, oh, I just, I am feeling the pleasure of beauty. The truth is beautiful. I love that the Lord doesn't just want to say, I love you. He wants to shock us with the details of that love. And it's shocking, but the shock gets us out of our calloused unbelief. That's right. The shock gets us into a, we're a little wobbly, like, could this be true? And if we'll stay with it, your point, if we'll stay with it, on the other side of it is profound pleasure in the gospel and profound joy in being loved by Jesus, a moved God with with deep and powerful emotions. 
that are worth mining and staying with in prayer and in journaling and conversation, conversation with one another. I want to encourage you in that. I want to encourage you to, as we talk about these things, I want to encourage you to talk about these things with the Lord, with a journal open, with, with your, with a friend that loves this stuff. Find somebody that loves this stuff like you do, or ask the Lord to connect you with somebody that loves this stuff like you do. That's always the great challenge. Lord, is there somebody out out there like me that, that can go on this journey with me? I, I want to pray that for you. Lord, I'm asking for those that are listening, that are feeling lonely in the journey. They, they have friends that are godly, but but they're looking for somebody that lo- that wants to go on the journey of loving you like they do and exploring the subject and talking about the beauty and the love of Jesus. God, I'm asking that you'd begin to cluster together and draw together like-minded, like-hearted believers that, that uh, are as awestruck and alive in these things as the ones listening are, or at least want to be. I'm asking that you would help us. Help us to give us grace to persevere, to stay with it until the truths break through mm-hmm. and our hearts are moved like your heart is. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We'll bless you and thank you. This is so fun. Thank you so, so much, fun. Dana. I'm loving this. We'll talk more about the Song of Solomon next week. See you then. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IHOPKC Family Connect podcast. Consider subscribing if you haven't, and follow us on social media for other content from IHOPKC.